Amen. You can have a seat. Can we thank our worship team for leading us this morning? So grateful for them and the way it aligns our hearts with the Spirit of God. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We're continuing to look deeply at the account of how everything began. We've meditated on the extensive beauty and care with which the Lord has created the expanse of the universe and then how he zeroed in, focused in on planet Earth and creatively crafted a perfect environment for his creation to survive and thrive in. And the smallest of which was not breathing his own breath and building in his own image humankind. Unfortunately, for the last few weeks, we have had to remind ourselves that very quickly in this story, once humans were on the scene, things started to fall apart. Sin entered the world, and the effects we've seen have been devastating. We've seen the exile from the garden. We've witnessed the first murder with evil intent, and that has resulted in a divided family Taking the place of Abel, Seth's family continues to follow the Lord, and we've just been introduced to the name Noah, whose name means rest, his father Lamech hoping and praying that maybe his son will bring the fruition of God's promise to Eve. But alongside that family growing is Cain's family, who is marked by their rebellion Truly the seed of the serpent, and unfortunately, they are becoming the majority. Things are going from bad to worse. The title of today's message and what we're about to see in Genesis chapter 6 is A World on the Brink of Destruction. It might be hard, but try to imagine living in a world where the majority of the population has no desire or regard to follow the standards God has for his creation, where people are so sexually broken that the original design of marriage and relationships are constantly defamed and violated so that everything is based solely on physical or emotional attraction, even if it is completely unnatural, a place where culture constantly elevates people to be the standard for morals, influences, decisions, based only on their success and aptitude for power. Try to imagine a world where evil and violence are so commonplace that you can't even process one act before you're witnessing the next one. Unfortunately, it's not hard to imagine at all. This is the world we're going to read about in Genesis chapter 6. And we cannot miss the parallels that we can pull into our world today. We will see it as a world on the brink of destruction. And it serves as a sobering reminder to us that God's justice and wrath in the days of Noah are very real. But they are also very real to be coming again. My hope is that we would see our complete inability to rescue ourselves from destruction. That only God can save. And our response would merely be, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. You've broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, our living hope. 
Before we get there, we need to see what has brought us to the brink of destruction. Read with me in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of God. Now these eight verses we've just read, they're serving as a literary transition for Moses as he's writing this. He's closing out chapters four and five and setting up where the story is going, specifically with the introduction of Noah. Verse eight, introducing Noah, introduces then verse nine, which is the third of the generations statements we've seen already. Look at verse nine quickly. It says, these are the generations of Noah. And he's doing this because Noah is not a minor character in the Bible. He's not a footnote in a genealogy. Noah is mentioned 50 times in nine different books of the Bible. And so we're transitioning in our story to then focus in on another person that God is going to use greatly to showcase his salvation to the world. Better yet, he is helping us understand the consequences of sin, the character of our God, and the thread of salvation that is woven throughout the Bible. So we can't just skip over these eight verses and go into the next story. We must pause for a moment and pull out some observations. The first thing I want you to see is there is a continued design departure happening in the world. Verse 1 says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. So Moses is notating a passing of time. Other translations say, now it came to pass. So it's letting us know there's been a long period of time. We can see from the genealogies behind us that hundreds and hundreds of years, generations upon generations have passed. And he's emphasizing daughters being born because daughters lead to more children being born. So he's letting us know that the the command that God gave in the garden to be fruitful and multiply is happening right now. The way God intended his creation to act, they are acting. The population is increasing all across the land. But then he's going to note that something starts happening that wasn't in the original design. Verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. So from a high level, we should observe that two separate groups are coming together in a relationship. And we'll see later in verse 4 that there's offspring being produced from these two separate groups. The two groups, the sons of God and the daughters of man. Now the question everybody wants to ask is, who are the sons of God? What does that mean? 
And this gets people bogged down because we want to fully understand God's word, which is impossible to do at times. And so, but we're going to just pause for a second. Let me give you the three main theories that exist from theologians and scholars as they've studied this passage. The three main theories. The first one is this. They are fallen angels. That these sons of God are fallen angels who abandon heaven, leave heaven, and they assume an earthly body. They cohabitate with women and thus produce a race of giants, which then pulls in verse 4, in the Nephilim. So there's many who believe that these fallen angels marry these daughters of man. They have special angel babies that become the Nephilim. And we get this, we can pull this, and, and listen, don't, don't discredit any of these theories before you hear all of them, because all of them have merit, because you look throughout Scripture, and you see this phrase, sons of God, being used only towards angelic beings. If you were to read Job chapters 1 and chapter 2 and in chapter 38 and then Daniel chapter 3 verse 25, they use the same phrase, the same translation, sons of God, to refer to angelic beings. This is also uh, consistent with a lot of the early Jewish writers in the non-inspired, non-canical apocrypha. There's many references to sons of God being angels. And so while we don't pull that in to interpret scripture, we do find it helpful to, to put it up against other literature to understand how we can grow historically, theologically, and spiritually. Now this theory, in my mind, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered, not the least of which is, how is there a union between a sexless spirit being and flesh in blood humans. And even if that were possible, if an angel were be, was able to assume an earthly body and cohabitate with women, could there actually be offspring? And why would they be giants? All the questions we get in there. So it's not, it's not a foolproof theory by any means. There are still some questions out there, but a lot of scholars adhere to that. The second popular theory is that they're descendants of Seth. This is one of the most widely accepted views that the godly line of Seth, so the sons of God, is mixing with the ungodly line of Cain or the daughters of man, causing that whole generation to abandon their devotion to the Lord and continue to be corrupt. This helps us understand why the increasing population is corrupt godless people as opposed to the diminishing line of Seth, which we'll see results only in eight people, Noah's family, being put on the ark. So that would help us understand. But the, the debate here is in verse 1, that word man, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. That's, that's a humankind reference. It's, it's all people on the earth. And now all of a sudden we're saying the daughters of man only refers to the Cainites. So again, some holes in the theory. The third one, less popular, but is that these are kings of the earth. Powerful rulers engaging in royal polygamy, taking whatever wives they would choose that are actually empowered by demonic forces. This is based on the studies of ancient Near Eastern life and culture and how the kingdom is established by rulers, the, the people who served under those rulers would often view the, the kings of that generation to be divine entities. 
They would think they were some reincarnation of a God that they worshipped. If you're in one of our men's and women's studies going through Exodus, you might know that the Pharaoh of Egypt was believed to be divine, that he was the reincarnation or the son of Ra, the sun god. And so the the title, the sons of God, is is more a cultural thing that Moses could be applying to say at those times people viewed those powerful rulers as as so great that they must be direct descendants of God, of Elohim. The, The problem here is why such a familiar theme throughout the Bible, such as kingship, why would all of a sudden it be written so cryptic and nowhere else in Scripture do writers adhere to the cultural standards, but rather they declare truth over the culture. So you can see all these interpretations. They have their problems and are limited human understanding. Even in my, my own brain, in this week, I came into studying this passage and I was pretty convinced on Tuesday that these were human men from the line of Seth. By the time I ended my study all day Wednesday, I left my office 99% sure they were angels. But then I woke up Thursday 75% sure, and by the time I took a lunch break, I was back to thinking they were human men. So you can see there's, there's really no way that we can convince ourselves. We can speculate all we want. We can dive in. But where the Bible is brief and doesn't have a lot to say, we should do the same. Derek Kinder writes this in regards to this passage. He says, more important than the detail of this episode is its indication that man is beyond self-help. Whether the Sethites have betrayed their calling or demonic powers have gained a stranglehold. Whatever the case may be, whether it is descendants of Seth, special angel babies running around, or kings of the earth, the point that Moses is making is we are beyond help. It was a massive departure from the original design God had for sexuality and relationships. It is being paired together with someone who does not share the same spiritual beliefs that you do. No regard to the spiritual implications of these relationships. So a world on the brink of destruction is marked by its departure from the design. We are staring this straight in the face as a culture whether it was angels or, or, or men, the taking of wives any they chose is implying that the decision was based solely on lust and physical attraction. They didn't care where that person was going to pursue the glory of God. All that matters is that they were satisfied in their relationship. This is why Paul so strongly encourages us and urges us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? He's saying it's, it's not the design. It's not the way God meant it to be. So listen to me. If you are in a season of life where you are waiting and pursuing the idea of having a spouse... And the person you have feelings for or you are talking to or you're just hanging out or maybe you're dating or maybe you're courting or maybe it's an arranged marriage, whatever it is, if that person is not embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, they do not have a personal relationship with their Lord and Savior, run away. 
You are pursuing a life of hardship that you cannot understand. I have sat and I've listened to the sorrow pouring out of husbands married to unbelieving wives. Wives married to unbelieving husbands. There is a massive spiritual divide that you cannot overcome with all the self-help books, the marriage conferences, the better communication, blah, blah, blah. There is a spiritual chasm in your relationship. My heart breaks for marriages that walk through this. And listen, if, if you are in that, do not grow weary in pouring out the gospel in that relationship. Your hope lies in 1 Corinthians 7 when Paul is encouraging that the, the holiness of, of the believing spouse is actually covering the unbelieving spouse. And he, he gives this hope-filled question for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Salvation is from the Lord, but he can use your marriage to bring it about. Lean into that. But if, if you are not yet married, do not pursue this type of relationship in hopes of converting an unbeliever. But I can change him. I can, I can lead her to Christ. Wrong. It's like being chained to a boulder that is impossible to move and is actually moving in a separate direction than you because only God can regenerate a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And he doesn't need your romantic relationship muddling up the gospel to that person. Get out of the way and let the Lord do the work. And if the Lord has willed it, bring you back together when that is right and fitting. But do not pursue something that is a departure from the design. It only leads to destruction. The second observation is this. There is a limited opportunity. There's a limited opportunity. Verse 3 says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now some believe this is referring to the lifespan of mankind. We've seen that men are living a crazy amount of time on the earth. I mean, imagine getting to like year 500 and like you're just getting started. That sounds insane. Like we're like begging to retire at 65. And so some are, are believing that it's actually the only reason people are living this long is because God's spirit is so intertwined with the world at this time that he's sustaining his creation to a point of, of astronomical years and lifespan on the, on the earth. And as the sin increases, his spirit is separating and he's saying, that's it, I'm, I'm not going to keep doing this, I'm not going to keep sustaining them. And as he removes his spirit from doing that, the lifespan goes down. The other interpretation where, where I lean myself is this is God's timeline before the flood. He sees the wickedness on earth. He's going to wipe it from the face of the earth. And he could have done it in that instant when he sees it, but he gives 120 years of grace. 120 years of long-suffering patience where Noah will preach as he builds an ark. Repent! The wrath of God is coming. Turn to the Lord. 120 years of declaring that the day of salvation is today, again and again. Turn and repent of your sins. 120 years of opportunity and not one single person will repent. 
It's a limited opportunity, and at some point it must end. Look also in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So a couple words he uses there. We're on the earth in those days, again marking so 120 years from those days until the flood and, and also afterward. And so it's like an at the same time and, on, and ongoing. It's a, it's a phrase to say all at the same time that this was happening, these people were on the earth. So I believe this is Moses giving us a time stamp, declaring that it, as his readers would read this, they would know exactly what period of time he was referring to. Now the question everyone gets hung up on is who are the Nephilim? So again, you have a few options based on different interpretations. Let me give you three of them. The first one is that they are angel-human hybrid giants, which just sounds awesome. It's fun to think about. So this is, the again, adhering to the idea that the sons of God were actually angels and they were marrying women and they were having children and it sprung this whole crazy race of angel-human-hybrid giants. The second one is that they are powerful, evil warriors of great stature. So large men who have banded together and become kind of a warrior pact, a warrior clan, and are known for their brutality and their violence so that they were given their own name so that people could refer to them and, and, and they struck fear in the heart of people, right? You can imagine people running around going, uh, we don't want to talk about the they that must not be named Nephilim type of thing. It just strikes fear in the heart of people. The third one in the war I lean to is nobody really knows. And that's, that's where you should land because, again, tons of speculation, tons of us trying to understanding, and yet again, Moses did not intend for us to focus on who these mighty men were. He's using this as a transition, and to his readers, they would have known exactly who he was talking about, what type of people he was talking about, and they would have understand what period of time he was referring to. Because whatever these Nephilim were, they would have perished in the flood. But we know in Numbers 13, when the spies brought back a report about the promised land, 10 of the spies were fearful that, that Israel could not take the land. And so they, they say this to Joshua and the people in Numbers 13. It says, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So here's where we'll leave the Nephilim debate. One article states it like this. It is quite possible that Nephilim simply became a semi-technical term for giant warrior. It may have had some nebulous overtones of mystery as well. It might be similar to the modern term monster. That word can be used to refer to size, as in monster truck or monster candy bar. It can also have dark overtones. When someone is described as a monster, it can refer to an evil character. And finally, a monster might be some kind of supernatural creature, even something of a hybrid like a vampire, a werewolf, or Frankenstein's monster. 
With our limited knowledge of the word Nephilim, it appears the Nephilim were gigantic, mysterious warriors of uncertain DNA, to use a modern term. To the people who observed them, they seemed to be unnatural. Even today, we have giants among us. The average NBA or NFL player is freakishly gigantic compared to most of us. This does not mean that there is a race of human-angel hybrids who are secretly in our midst. I mean, we get this, right? There, there's lo- people of large stature that just, we can't really comprehend, and we don't understand, like, how do they get that big? And I'm, I was watching the Purdue basketball home opener, and I just found this picture hilarious to me. So that is Dallas Graziana for Sanford is 5'8", and he took the opening tip against Zach Eady, who is 7'4". <laughs> like... Just a massive man. Like, you can't, like, it doesn't really compute in your brain. You feel like it's Photoshop or a trick of the camera or something. Like, there's no way. Can you imagine just, just walking into him and standing up at him? And now imagine that, that Zach Eady is not just trying to win a basketball game. He is a dominating warrior with a knack for violence and evil. These men were walking around. They were legends at the time. The mighty men, the men of renown, means they were known for what they were doing, and it was not anything good. It was brutality on the earth. The evil and violence they brought to the world was horrific. So the Lord is starting the clock, 120 years. My spirit will not abide in, the word is translated as, my spirit will not strive or fight or contend with man forever. See, even in those days, the Holy Spirit is active in working and presenting the opportunity for people to repent and put their trust in God rather than the world and their desires. But the time is coming when that opportunity will end. The same is true in this day. The opportunity is limited. Jesus is coming again in the time of preaching and proclaiming the truth and calling people to repent. It will be over. It's a limited opportunity. Now, the urgency of this in this time doesn't change anything. The world continues to sink into sin until we see God declare the next observation. Look at verse 5. Total depravity. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you you see the totality and finality of this statement? It's not that there is some wickedness. It's not that there's a group of people pursuing evil things. No, it is great in the earth. It is the overwarming, overwhelming force of the earth. If you're averaging out wickedness to righteousness on a pie chart, you wouldn't even be able to see the sliver that denotes righteousness because of the massive percentage of wickedness. And the people behind this wicked force, it's it's not that they tend to make bad choices or even consistently do evil acts. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only 
evil continually. Thoughts of the heart, that's implying the whole being. Mind, soul, body, will. So every intention of their whole being, evil. And we might say, that sounds so horrible. Those are terrible people. I'd hate to be alive at that time. I'd hate to, to know someone that has that much depravity in their heart and in their being. Well, unfortunately, friends, you have only to look in a mirror. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 declares that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 Corinthians 2, Paul states that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons, uh, not of God, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The stark reality you and I need to face today is that if, if we were alive in this period of time, to somehow think that we would be listed in verse 8 is wrong. This is a doctrine we must understand. That we are so completely and utterly depraved that nothing we do, nothing we offer is enough to get us closer to God. It is only God's amazing grace. The moment you start to lift humankind from the pit of sin and say, well, we're not all bad. We have some good in us. Some people have the potential to be spiritually better than others. I'm not as bad as other people. You start to cheapen the grace of God. You shorten the distance of the chasm until it is a a puddle that the Lord had to skip over to get to you instead of the ocean of his wrath that was poured out on Jesus Christ so that the cross would be the bridge that you could walk across. Moses is setting the backdrop here for God's grace to explode with radiance. Total depravity setting the stage for for God to move. And our God is just. And before he reveals his grace, we must first see his woeful judgment. Verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now God is not surprised by any of this. This isn't him being caught off guard and admitting he made a mistake and now he's got to do something different. He knew this was the plan.
He said to Adam, the day that you eat of it, the, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Destruction is the judgment that sin deserves from a holy and sinless God. God cannot be associated with sin. He doesn't create evil and catastrophe. Rather, it is our sin and, and his absence that allows that to be true. And as he looks upon his creation that at one point made him say, it is good, he now responds with, I am sorry I ever made it. And to be clear, that word sorry is a weak translation. It's, it's anguish and sorrow over the state of the world. God is pained by what he has seen. And knowing what he must do in his justice does not negate the emotions that he is experiencing. In the same way you and I look at injustice and evil in the world, the brutality of war, children being beheaded, babies murdered by the thousands, heinous acts of violence, oppression, and hate crimes, even the cultural attack on the mind and the anxiety, depression, and confusion that exists. It makes our stomach turn. What then does God feel? The God who watches his precious creation, the, the jewel of his creation and human guy kind that used to walk with him in close proximity, continue to turn over and over and embrace the serpent as it continues to bite and devour with its sin and to a point where he finally has to say enough. The time is over. I am so grieved. And I have to blot it out. That, that word blot is to wipe away like it never existed. He's resetting. Every living thing must be destroyed. And we might read this and we might be surprised at the brutality of God or, or we think that somehow this is such a, such a mindless, cold act of our God to just reset the world. But we should be surprised by how long the Lord's patience lasted by the long suffering that he endured with the wicked and vile generation. And so we could look around the world even today and declare, Lord, where's this judgment now? Send your, send your floodwaters now and wipe out the wicked. How long, O oh Lord, must I endure my enemies, David cries out. And the simple answer is if, if the Lord brought about his judgment as swiftly as we desired, none of us would be sitting here. But the beautiful thing we get to say today is that amid his woeful judgment, we see the glorious hope of his saving grace. Verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How? What, what was Noah doing that caught the attention of God? What, what was Noah about in that day and age that would have somehow earned him a spot for God to declare, that, that's the guy I want to save? I mean, he must have been a pretty good person compared to the rest of the world. 
He must have been kind and generous. Probably didn't do anything too bad. Probably didn't smoke. Maybe he didn't get drunk yet. It was a Bible joke. He, he didn't sleep around like those weird angel things or Seth's family, whatever those things are. But Noah found favor with God, and so he must have done something, right? He must have accomplished the right amount of tasks for God to say, okay, Noah, I, I'm excusing you from everything else. No, friends, Noah found favor because he put his faith in God. Recognizing his, his sin and his inability to save himself, he just declared that I trust God. And so God's favor is it's, it's being held out to Noah. And Noah's just walking into it. He wasn't reaching for it. He wasn't striving for it. God is handing it to Noah. Noah found favor, and he didn't do anything to earn it. Psalm 5, verse 12 says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Psalm 84, verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Grace. Grace. God's Grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. So although this is a, it's a hard passage to read because how, how can we pull out any sort of loving God to, to look upon the, the world that's so broken? Why didn't he just fix it? Why didn't he just take out the really bad people and leave the good people and just kind of start to rearrange the world? Why did his judgment have to come in such a harsh way? Why did he even let it get to this state? Couldn't he have done something earlier? It's a hard passage to reach, but the saving grace of God is not absent in this story. It is the story. You cannot know the magnitude of your salvation until you understand what you were saved from. Our God is not a cold, calculated robot God who's just pressing buttons and making decisions. He's intertwined with his creation, chasing down the hearts of his people through his spirit, and we are constantly rejecting and turning. We see even amidst all the corruption, all the hardship, all the grossness of the world, the Lord is pulling out a remnant for salvation so that his promise would remain that from the line of Eve would come a savior and you can imagine it at this time and we'll get into it in, in the coming weeks of, of the story of Noah and you can imagine the, the hope that his family had that maybe this is the one this is the one that will bring rest and he's continuing to follow the Lord and is this our savior and the judgment comes and only Noah and his family remains and we know there is hundreds and hundreds of years until we'll see the fulfillment. But God in this moment, in his divine providence and plan, he is setting aside a remnant so that you and I would know the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ here today. 
All the promises of God remain. All the promises of God are, are yes and amen. And the beautiful thing is that this grace is available to you today. The opportunity is limited. The total depravity is real. The woeful judgment is coming. But his saving grace is here. And friends, Jesus declared what things would look like in Matthew 27, he says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so as we pull parallels from the story and say, yeah, it feels like our culture right now, let it not us just dive into what First Timothy 4.7 says, a reverent silly myths about Nephilim and sons of God and how many years and when's the end times and all. It doesn't matter. Either he's declared, Paul says to Timothy, train yourself for righteousness. Repent and and believe and call on the name of the Lord and put all your hope and your trust in him. No one knows the hour. No one knows the day. No one knew when those floodwaters would rise, but the day that it did, Noah, encapsulated in the salvation of the Lord, is the same illustration for us today. Do you have the covering of Jesus Christ over you? If you have yet to acknowledge that God is holy and you are sinful, totally depraved, and because of that, Jesus died on a cross in your place as a substitute for your sin and then rose on the third day as Lord over all, and only those who repent and believe in that truth will be saved, then what are you waiting for? Are you waiting to clean up your life a little bit more? Maybe you need to figure out a few more things, try a few more things, dive into a couple other options. I just want to tell you it's a waste of time. That bottle is empty. The path is a dead end. And you are walking in circles hoping to end up in a different place. The only cure for mankind, the only solution to our problems in this world is Jesus You can't take enough medication. You can't get the right kind of therapy. You can't buy enough. You can't do enough. You can't be enough. You can't vote enough. You can't do enough to make everything better. Jesus is the only way. And the day to believe that is today. And if you have embraced that, if you are fully under the salvation of Jesus Christ, then may may we be found with favor in the eyes of the Lord. May we be walking uprightly in our stature and declaring to the nations, repent and turn, the Lord is coming. The time is limited. Put your faith and your trust and your hope in our God. Let's pray. Lord, I am left with a sobering reminder of where I once stood on the brink of destruction. And Lord, you pulled me back from the edge by no merit of myself. Lord, you provided the way of escape time and time again from the sin and temptation that so easily entangles and Lord, only by faith did I take hold of that and walk away. 
from a life that was doomed. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for being my hope in times of trial. And Lord, as we look at the world around us, would you give us eyes to see those who need to hear this message? That there's a God whose judgment is coming, his saving grace is ever present. And so Lord, we, we ask for you to Give us courage and strength to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Lord, would you give us grace again today? Help us to see the salvation that was not our own to bring about, but rather to put all of our hope and faith into Jesus. Thank you for filling the chasm so that we could walk across it. And we want to respond in worship, not just with our voice, but with our lives. And so in all things, God, would you be glorified? And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has yet to make a profession of faith to see themselves in a world depraved and and understand that they fit right into that and there's no hope in themselves, Lord, I pray that they would reach out in faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, we confess our sin, we confess our inability, and we call on the death of Jesus Christ, his blood covering us, his burial, and then his resurrection, declaring the power over sin and shame. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet and let's respond in song together.